episode 139 of the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. Why not check out some of my free content by going over to my website, fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Each week on the Mindset Game Podcast, we bring you an inspirational athlete, message or expert talking about human optimization to teach you how to change the perception of your mindset and to become one percent better make sure to share this with your friends on your instagram story on twitter on facebook they can find this episode on apple Podcasts, spotify or anywhere that they listen to podcasts by searching for mindset game podcast without further ado let's get into today's show and on today's show, I welcome back Phil White. He's the co-author of Game Changer, Waterman 2.0, and 17-Hour Fast, which we recently talked about. So welcome back onto the show, Phil. Oh, thank you, sir. So for, obviously, the listeners that missed the, ep- the episode we had together talking about the 17-Hour Fast, can you yeah. give a brief overview of what we talked about in that episode? Yeah, so in terms of the protocol, really, there's, um, I mean, the simplest way to say it is you eat dinner, you know, maybe six o'clock in the evening and then don't eat again until the following lunchtime. And then if you're going to have your coffee or your tea or something like that, then uh, just don't put milk in it, basically, (laughs) or sugar. And so you can still do that. And actually, Ben Greenfield and some others have turned up some evidence that having caffeine can actually... Um, enhance or amplify some of the positive effects of fasting. So still go ahead and have your caffeine, but yeah, you just don't eat. And then um, with the pre and post meals, you really create an on-ramp and off-ramp. So you reduce the size of, of the dinner that night and then your lunch that you have to break your fast the following day by 50%. And you want those percentages to be around 40% fat, 40% protein and 20% carbs. And so um, really the reason for, for that is um, to create, as I said, kind of an on-ramp and off-ramp so you get some of the physical benefits of a longer fast. And also any time, James, in your, say in your training or just in life, like the body, you may have had it said that like nature abhors or doesn't like a vacuum and tries to fill it. Well, the body doesn't like a delta, a big delta. So in your training, say you're bench pressing 80 kgs, and then suddenly you try to jump up to 140 kgs, you're going to have a problem more likely than not. And so with the fasting pre and post meals, getting them a little bit smaller and changing those macros around a bit means that there isn't such a delta. So you're not going from massive meal to not eating anything to massive meal again. And so that's kind of the second reason for kind of creating that on-ramp and off-ramp with just changing up and reducing the size of those pre and post meals. And this probably uh, goes nicely with my next question to you, Phil. Relating the two books together, how would the, say, the reader of Waterman 2.0 utilize for, say, for example, 17-hour fast and vice versa Mm -hmm. if the person that's reading 17-hour fast is actually uh, somebody conducive of of water sport? Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, and again, with Waterman 2.0, sure, it's the primary audience is paddlers, surfers, and rowers. But it, what we, the way that we talk about 
protecting the spine above everything. That goes if you're picking up a delivery box that the postman leaves on your front doorstep or you're picking up your grandkids every bit as much as it or you're deadlifting in the gym. Um, or you're, you're using that horrendous scrum machine that rugby players know all too well. You know, it's the same principles. Um, and so I think with Waterman, it does have that kind of broader appeal if you're not in one of those sports I mentioned. And so in that, you know, if you're in any kind of sport, obviously your goal is to recover better and to be healthier. And so, um, you know, intermittent fasting or even in this case, uh, a once a week fast for 17 hours is something that you can benefit from. And um, there's some research to show that um, a fast of this kind of length does actually increase growth hormone by up to 1,200% in men. And I think it was by 800 and something percent in women for the 24 hours immediately following the fast. And so I think, James, one of the things that I was reluctant about and really took Frank to task with and kind of held his feet to the fire, and Frank being Dr. Frank Merritt, my, my co-author on the 17-hour fast, was... Well, I struggle to keep weight on at the best of times, you know, and uh, one of those where I feel like I could eat all day and just never put anything on, which I blame my dad, I guess, for the fast metabolism. But he, uh, so I was like, well, I'm worried if I do this, you know, that I'm going to going to struggle even more to keep on weight. And so he actually sent me the research on the growth hormone and some others besides about testosterone levels and how occasional fasting can boost that. And that kind of counteracts the you know, those fears that I had. And then also he just said, well, if you're going to be fasting, just make sure that late, later in, you know, the following day that you're making up for those calories, particularly if you're training hard. And so I think the two go, do go hand in hand from the standpoint of Waterman 2.0 is, is really a movement manifesto. And so it's, it's helping people to move better and um, recover better by incorporating better positioning and also more mobility and more targeted mobility into their routine. So then, um, you know, Dr. Katie Bowman talks a lot about behavioral stacking, where you can not just do one or two sporadic things, but you can actually combine them. So you can add in your breath work, you can add in your fasting, you can add in your mobility. And in the 17-hour fast, another thing that we do in the evening of the fast and then the following morning before you break the fast is say, do some things that, you know, you would find relaxing or rejuvenating. And obviously, one of those that you could do is some mobility work. And so I think that those are two ways that those two books kind of complement each other. And Phil, when you say mobility work, do you not necessarily mean the likes of yoga, Pilates? Do you mean just general, to a certain extent, stretching exercises? Well, yes and no. I mean, Kelly hate, Kelly Storrett hates the term stretching because he said if you got your favorite cotton T-shirt and you grab both ends and you just yank them as hard as you can, what are you going to get? Like a horrendous stretched out T-shirt that's all weird in the middle, right? So um, really what we're talking about there is, you know, mobility is, is I guess, in the practical sense, the ability to get into a position with foot moving your range through uh, your joints through a full range of motion and being able to sustain that. But when we talk about it from a recovery standpoint, we're really talking soft tissue work. So for most people, the term that they would know is foam rolling in quotes, even though you can use lacrosse balls and various other torture pieces of torture equipment that, that Kelly and others have, or, um, you know, tool assisted mobility work, that thing where you, your massage therapist might lotion you up and get that, that metal or plasticky scrapey thing and scrape you a little bit to, to remove adhesions. So really what the aim of this is to, to increase recovery, 
um, improved positional capacity in the lunge, the squat, the overhead position, really all the main positions your body's meant to be in and may not be able to if you've been injured or you're just super tight in certain areas. And then also to, as I've just mentioned, remove any adhesions that you may have in your soft tissues that might be limiting your capacity a little bit or, or indeed causing pain. And so when I say mobility, that's really what I'm talking. And really that the simplest form of um, what Kelly Starrett is talking about with mobility, what is to just do 10 minutes of mobility a day, every day, um, you know, pre and post training. And then also while you're doing your training to be in better positions. And then that's some of the stuff that we start to get into in Waterman 2.0. And you mentioned in the previous episode a little bit in 17 Hour Fast about some of the common, not misconceptions, but common injury ailments of the Wasman 2.0. You were talking more specifically, a lot of that was around the actual shoulder area. Can you go a little bit in more detail than what we mentioned in the previous episode? Sure. Well, I think that... um a lot of people forget that the the scapula or the shoulder blade is really the steering wheel for the shoulder. And you know how almost everyone we know, and probably us, oh, definitely myself, probably yourself included, certainly my wife has rubbed my finger, rubbed her back until my fingers were sore this morning, you know, uh, shoulders and neck were real tight at the top. So we think about the base of the neck and the traps being real tight, and we all hold tension there. But a lot of the time, tension, headaches and migraines and this kind of thing and pain in that area can can actually come from further down in those soft tissue areas in the thoracic spine. So really um, the shoulder blade area. And we sometimes see in athletes, and you'll know this from rowing, that you can almost get what we call a winged scapula, which is where instead of being straight up and down, you start to see the shoulder blade wing out to one side. It almost starts to rotate out. Well... Imagine trying to drive your car, mate, with one or both of the front wheels pointed out at odd angles. That's the starting position. <laughs> You're not going to get very far. <laughs> You're going to hit something. And so I think with the shoulder, the misconception is that we spend all this time on the ball and socket joint and we we forget the scapula. So the fix there is to... Um, pin a ball against the wall um, between your spine. You obviously don't want, ever want um, a mobility ball or tool on, on uh, bone or hard tissue. You want it on soft tissue. So that squishy area in between your shoulder blade and the spine, just kind of gently rub it back and forth, scrub it back and forth, up and down diagonally for a few minutes a day. Alternatively, you can get um, two lacrosse balls taped together or two similarly shaped balls, or Kelly has a, 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 a tool called the Mobility Ward Gemini, which is really the same thing, but it's just one contiguous tool. And you can actually put that um, horizontally across your spine in those areas. So there's a little notch there, so uh, so it won't actually touch the spine itself. And lie flat on your back, put put the tool between your back and the, and the floor or a yoga mat, and just backstroke overhead for a couple of minutes, starting with it at the base of your shoulder blades, and just every couple of minutes, just move it up a little bit. And if you find a particularly sticky spot, stay there and camp out for a while. And then you can go all the way up to the traps where you put a lacrosse ball or another small ball under each side, so two independent balls. And you can even bridge your hips up a bit and then backstroke on that. And that's going to take care of a lot of tension in that 
thoracic spine going up into the cervical spine area that we see, again, causing tension headaches and migraines I mean, everyday folks and in athletes alike. And it's also going to then feed slack into your shoulder. So if you've got a dodgy shoulder like I do, which in my case is hypomobility, which means it's too mobile, um, that's going to solve some problems. And then we can also go to the, um, the other end where we start to look at stability. And so in addition to doing what I just said and tackling some of the other tissues around the shoulder, so whether it be the triceps, the biceps, the chest wall, the deltoids, and the other muscles, which, you know, just look up some anatomy website, you'll find all that. Basically get a ball in there and smash around on it slowly till you start to feel some change. Um, I started doing something that uh, Gray Cook, who is the physical therapist, who came up with the functional movement screen which is a model for injury prediction and then corrections based on asymmetries and uh, discrepancies between the left and right side of your body. And that's used by NASA. It's used by the NFL Combine. It's used by special forces here in the U.S. And Gray, um, when he took a look at my shoulder, said, well, it looks like you're doing all your mobility work right, but your problem is actually at the shoulder a stability problem. And here's the fix. Two or three times a week as part of your warm-up before you paddle, there, or, or you get on the rowing machine, whatever it might be, lift weights, grab a kettlebell and maybe start with something light like a 35 pounder and, and carry it overhead in what we, I guess we could call a waiter's carry. So it's fully overhead head extended. When you start with fatigue, bring it down to a, a front rack carry, which is where your grip is, is turned around, your palm is facing your chest and you're kind of keeping that grip into the front of your collarbone pin the shoulder back and then walk with the kettlebell there until you fatigue and then drop it down slowly into a suitcase carry, which as it sounds like as if you were carrying your suitcase beside you at the airport. And then when you fatigue there, simply switch sides, go up to the other side, top, front rack, bottom, and just set a timer for 10 minutes and just do that. And that's going to sort out your stability issue. And I was like, come on, Gray, that it, what else do you got for me? You know, he's like, no, seriously, that's it. And so I did that and bang, no more shoulder pain. And so the combination thereof of what we talked about initially with the mobility exercises and then combining that with, with the three position carry for stability, that can do an awful lot to take care of common shoulder problems. And first of all, Phil, let's go back to the, the mobility. First of all, talk to me of your personal experience of you talk about that excruciating pain. Uh, excruciating pain. Sorry. How bad was it for you initially, and how and how was that over time diminished? Sure. So I mean, we're not talking about like bite down on the stick. You know, I'm gonna like Braveheart. You can do it. I'll hold him down. <laughs> no, you do it. I'll hold him down. You know, I'm not like cauterizing a wound here with a. Uh, with a piece of metal that I've just stuffed in a campfire. But I mean, it, it really flared up anytime I, I was stand up paddle boarding, which I can't right now because our little mountain lake is frozen. But really from April until mid to late November every year, I try to paddle two or three times a week. And there's something about that stand up paddling where you're not fully overhead, but it is somewhere in between that mid-level pulling position of say rowing and overhead and there was something about it that just made it flare up and so on the front of my deltoid so just above the bicep there was like a three inch seam that would just light up i would paddle for about five minutes and it would feel just horrific in there so i mean probably you know seven out of ten so it was painful you know like i thought 
initially I thought of I, you know, partially torn labrum or, you know, um, one of the rotator cuff muscles and, and it wasn't that. And I was like, so what the heck is it? So I did Kelly's mobility work and it took it down to maybe a, a five. Um, and I was like, well, I, I don't get it because I have full range of motion. You know, you can see it on the video. I can, I can, I can pull, I can retract. Um, but then I was doing some Olympic lifting back at, at the college I went to in Kansas City. And the, the team physio for the basketball team was in there watching a few of us. And this was two summers ago. And he noticed that my scapula was winged on the right side. So this was where the conversation with Kelly Starrett came. Like, um, Kel, what, what is, the, is there any relationship between that sore right shoulder and, and a winged scapula? And he was like, well, duh, you know. But then again, I, didn't, I, I don't have <laughs> a doctor. I'm not a doctor of physical therapy like he is. So I didn't get it. And that's when we got into that discussion about the, the relationship between the, the scapula being kind of the ske- steering wheel for the shoulder and what commonly happens in athletes is they get super tight in the thoracic spine and then they start making compensations at the shoulder, sometimes at the wrist and the elbow as well to try to compensate for that lack of mobility or they start to collapse forward at the shoulder. And it, it's like that old song, Dem Bones, you know, like the knee bones connected to the thigh bone, etc. It's kind of a silly song, but it's actually true from an anatomy standpoint. And it isn't just the bones. It's um, all the soft tissues that, and also the bands of fascia underneath. And so really, you cannot just look at the shoulder because everyone always thinks, oh, it's a torn labrum or it's a rotator cuff, right? Like how many people do you know if um, they have a shoulder problem, you ask them about it and they're like, oh yeah, it's got, it's got to be the rotator cuff. You know, I'm going to go see my doctor, go see my physio, most of them, right? And it's a common thing, but we can't look at just the ball and socket in isolation because again, if you have stiffness in the bicep, the tricep, the pecs, the deltoids, it's all going to come into play on that shoulder joint. And again, if you have a wing scapula or you just have tightness, in your thoracic spine, it's going to profoundly affect your capacity in that shoulder. And so for me, the mobility alone wasn't enough. I needed mobility plus stability. And then suddenly the pain went to zero. Like it just wasn't there anymore. Um, and that was probably a combination of doing Gray's uh, three position carry for about three months and then just doing my daily mobility work. And just trying to trying to figure it out, you know, because it wasn't a positional problem. It was it was a mobility and stability problem. And I think you raised a good point there, Phil, in terms of people assuming it's a rotator cuff injury. Or well, I've I've well, you could say it had the misfortune of having one. Okay, it was only a minute one, but I'll put it in perspective for people. I tried to literally get off the floor and couldn't move just by push, like doing a simple. Uh, uh, what would it simple, simple action just pr- trying to press off that I, I could I know the, the signals were going to the sh- to my hand and nothing was happening You're thinking okay there's something wrong I'm pushing why am I not moving and that ended up being um, minute chair of my rotator cuff I felt a burning sensation in training but thought nothing of it I thought oh I've just fatigued uh, the intensity of training is a, bit, is a little bit higher than what I'm used to just carry on, okay, maybe in hindsight, maybe I should listen to my body, this burning sensation was probably not a good thing. Uh, luckily for me, it happened when I was at the elite level, so it, the turnaround and getting something fixed to that nature is quite rapid. So 
in the space of that day, I'd seen the physio, uh, one of the head doctors in the English Institute of Sport, uh, had an ultrasound to see what the actual damage was that I'd caused. Okay, you could see it on the screen, well, this is what you've done. Uh, what did they give me to do? Uh, Painkillers. Uh, and then re like bed rest well, that, as an athlete is very frustrating. He's like having time off, thinking, okay, I'd rather be training, but like they said, um, the prognosis was worst case scenario, MRI and cortisone injection. And I've, I've heard stories of of those that down the down the years of what problems you can have. Obviously, not not having any sensation in in the area that you have. You're thinking, well. Mm. Worst case scenario, if I have to have it, okay, for me to be able to continue in the sport, we'll come to that when it does. And then obviously the MRI, we should see if it healed by itself. I won't say I had a miraculous recovery. They were very surprised how fast my body healed itself. I went from, I think about five to seven days, and I was back training, and I was a bit surprised to myself, thinking, okay, but. We're talking now almost 10 years ago, so I think my body wouldn't be as quick to repair now, but that's put it into perspective. It's, that was a minute tear. I, I I'm like to be look at it from a um, gratitude kind of way. I could have done a hell of a lot worse. I could have torn it off the bone or something like that, it, which would have been a lot worse. But I think it puts it into perspective if it's tightness or it's given a little bit of restriction most of the time it's probably something else that's been the root cause like you like you mentioned yeah and i think that the third um aspect of this so we mentioned mobility we mentioned stability i think that strength is another underrated thing and let, let me put this into perspective and so what kelly has found in working with um Aaron Kafaro McKenzie, who is uh, his friend Brian McKenzie's wife, you know, double Olympic gold medalist rower, in working with the, uh, another American Olympic rower, Sarah Hendershot, is that, um, you know, rowers are really comfortable with pulling, particularly a mid-level pull, but which you know <laughs> better than most, James. But the other end of that same position is a push. And so they were both those athletes I mentioned were having issues with ribs and um, rib injuries. And Kelly looked at their capacity and he was like, mm, how much pressing are you doing? And the answer was not very much. And so it may seem counterintuitive in a sure you're pushing with your legs, but what's primarily a pull from, from the upper body if you finish with the arms for you to want to train a push. But it is, if you look at it positionally through that lens, it is two ends of the same movement. And so what he prescribes to a lot of rowers is a mid-level press. And so this doesn't have to be bench press. And personally, I freaking hate bench pressing, and it's probably because I'm crap at it. You know, like the lads back in the UK, we used to do it in the rugby club quite a bit. And um, North Dorset Rugby Club, there's a shout-out for you. But even some of the boys that went on to play higher-level rugby, you know, were pretty mon monstrous on the bench, and I never was. And so it may just be personal bias. And I know there is a time and a place for bench pressing, but it could be doing some dips on the TRX, you know, on the old uh, TRX regular suspension trainer or the even better, the duo trainer that has the dual anchor points or, or on the rings or indeed just as simple to start off to back it up even further. 
of just being able to, to do some push-ups with good form more often. And so that way you're starting to counter, because as we know, every movement it, it is a balance of push and pull, right? There's the, the movement and counter movement. There's the, um, you know, for every prime mover, there's an antagonist muscle in play. So if we're looking at the legs, you can't just think, oh, it's quad dominant movement. Well, the hamstrings are at play on the other end as well. And, it, and it's no different in the upper body. Yeah, okay, it's the lats are coming into play, and that's a big, powerful prime mover, you know, rhomboids and all these muscles on the back. But we can't neglect the chest and, and the front deltoids. And so really just balancing out that movement. So if you are an athlete that does a lot of pulling, do a bit more pushing and vice versa. And then also try to push and pull through other planes, so maybe you want to just do some push in overhead with it, with a single kettlebell, perhaps, or perhaps it's that you don't do any pull, pulling from a true overhead position. So you just do some more pull-ups and chin-ups and, and then start to vary the grip. Um, or, or it could be that, again, looking at that then from a mobility lens to put that back on top of it, a, a lot of shoulder problems can be cured by just hanging from a bar, um, you know, and just getting on there and hanging like the, the, if you look at the rock climbers like Alex Honnold the guy that, that in the movie Free Solo that Free Soloed Al Capitan there's a reason the guy hangs on a hangboard for a lot of the day and it isn't just finger strength hand strength and forearm strength it's also when he has been climbing and he's just lit up in various areas that just doing that hanging starts to then reverse a lot of the uh, well I wouldn't say damage but unstick some of that stickiness in those various points in the back again for rowers in the rib cage and so um so yeah really i guess what i'm saying is that, that strength as well as mobility and stability is kind of the third element when we look at the shoulder or any other joint in the body and then also just looking at bouncing push and pull and really working the shoulder through for, you know the full range of motion in every conceivable manner and also really doing Doing the exercises, I think, are more fundamental because you see a lot of guys and girls doing like the scarecrow and all this in quotes rotator movement with these tiny little dumbbells. And a lot of the time that's overemphasizing those rotator muscles, which is leaving them more liable to tear. And then secondarily, if they would just do some of the stuff I just mentioned, like a single arm kettlebell press, pull-ups, chin-ups, um, bench press, dips, um, obviously rowing or rowing type movements of weights, then really we're, we're stressing the shoulder through all of its major um, archetypes or fundamental movement patterns without the need to do umpteen little variations of these things that you see in Shape Magazine, girls doing with two pound weights of like, oh, twist your arms this way, twist your arms that way, do the scarecrow thing. Because frankly, anyone I know in elite performance um, thinks that those are just crap and it's for a reason because it's just gimmicky and it would be no different than you going into the, the gym and your workout being just curls and sit-ups and that's all you ever do. But that, that one you mentioned in terms of elite rowers in the US not doing a, doing a, um, a bench press or an equivalent, I'm quite sh- shocked and horrified by it because you're thinking, and this is coming from past experience as a rower, well, they have to some extent have to deal with a headwind from time to time, which is a pressing action. So you would think having the inclination and notion that you're going to have to deal with that on any course in the world at some particular time 
that you would incorporate that into your training? I don't know if that comes down to the coach, the strength and conditioning, or the athlete themselves. I'm not going to pass blame to anybody in particular, but I would have thought you would think outside the box as an athlete. Well, okay, predominantly, yes, I'm propelling the boat as I'm talking to you, towards you. So, yeah, a lot of the force is going to be that way. But you have to have control coming back up the opposite way, coming up the slide, so you're not kind of... And I would have well word this to not be too complex, to kind of affect the stability of the boat. So you, you are you need to have to some extent the connection with that, and it, it's having that muscle mind connection with the movements. Okay, it, you could probably mess around with the eccentric phase of some exercises, and thus getting. And I I did it on over the weekend. Technically, it was a back exercise, and and this is more specifically because I've gone into wheelchair basketball, which is the opposite way around now. I did a what was it seated row on God, what kind of type? It's a techno gym kind of equipment, so it's it's very much the the handles that you could do unilaterally if you wanted to. And I did an eccentric movement. Obviously, the, the pull is quick, and eccentric lowered it down. So I'm I'm putting stress on my biceps. And probably some extent my chest as well. So I'm get I'm to a certain extent probably uh, total body workout in my upper body. So it's messing around with things like that. Okay, in fairness to probably people listen to this, I've got the expertise from the training side of things as well and learning as an athlete. So I, I have probably asked questions of the coaches I've worked with, uh, other athletes. Um, trial and error myself, and say, okay, let me tr- let me try this. As uh, well, it's a little bit taking the b- body out of its comfort zone because, for me, historically, my back has been very very strong relative to my. I won't say my chest was weak, but the actual strength was probably more so in my back. So, okay, that's one way of doing it. And taking it out of its comfort zone, it's going to be a stressor because that eccentric movement, you don't necessarily assume it's going to do as much damage. But I'll put it in perspective: you're going to probably do more damage training like that than doing it concentrically, which is the pull. Mm-hmm. The, the naturally, well, for me, it would be the pulling exercise. If you were doing a press, is a pushing exercise. So that would be you're going to get more damage. So if you did it, in essence, flipping your training the other way around. You're going to see more more success from your training just just by tweaking it a little bit, and obviously there's different other factors to training as well. And obviously, the one probably most people miss is that stability issue. I've suffered it from time to time. You think I'd get I'd kind of knock it on its head and say, "Okay, Jane," because winging shoulders. I think in my in in my lifetime as an athlete. Gosh, I could probably count it on my hand, so which is which is not not a good thing, but I think that's where some athletes, I won't say get lazy, but kind of think, and maybe the general populace as well. Well, I'm in a rush. I've done my training session. I need to get home and oh yeah, do the it's recovery the of eating. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think you knocked it on the head. There is that um, the first thing you said, like that 
shows your intelligence as an athlete and also your coaches that they're willing to have that dialogue. But as Charlie Francis, the great Canadian sprint coach said, and he saw it from someone else, probably Aristotle or someone, that the, the, the problem with common sense is it's not that common. Because if it was, you wouldn't have statistics that say that 45% or above of, of people in the U.S., get less than seven hours sleep a night, you know? So how many millions of people is that? A lot. Mm -hmm. People wouldn't eat like crap, you know? And so um, just because we know we should doesn't mean that we do. And then secondarily, I think that in Waterman 2.0, particularly in surfing culture, I mean, your goal is to go out and get as many waves as you can, as often as you can, and your recovery is a couple of Pacifico lights in the bar with your buddies and some tacos on happy hour afterwards. So that was one of the issues that we wanted to confront was like, you don't have to turn yourself into an exercise physiologist to improve. But if you were doing certain sports, you're likely to be restricted here, here and here. And these are some of the common injuries we see, some of the common issues that Kelly's seen in working with athletes over all these sports for tens of thousands of hours. And literally, if you just spent five minutes Get you know you get a, get your get a ball up against the the side of your truck or your SUV and pin it to that a little bit and roll around on it you know just to relieve that tension between the shoulder blades like man one you'd feel better and two the next time you go out in the water you you're going to perform better too and so it's not about like taking it to in your case you know you're an, an Olympian level which I've never even glimpsed in any sport but. It, the lessons still hold and your body is still similar, more similar to my body and anyone else that's listening than it is dissimilar, even though you reach that much higher plane of performance. And so really, again, it goes back to what Kelly was saying about move all your joints through their full range of motions in every plane of motion at least once a week with some kind of stressor, whether it be load, number of reps or endurance, you know, speed, velocity, and do... 10 minutes of mobility work a day every day and we can all do that like no matter how busy we are no matter how many jobs different jobs that we're, we're trying to hold down how many kids we have whatever it might be we can all do that pretty pretty easily and simply so it's just making a few small tweaks here and there kind of like with the fasting just making one one little investment and then all of these things eventually better nutrition and hydration improved sleep quality and duration a little bit of mobility here, a little bit of fasting there, eventually yield up to a big dividend, kind of like compact compound interest. You know, if you have your employer pull out a certain percentage or, you know, your financial accounts or whatever, well, hopefully by the time you're ready to retire, that builds over time and that little commitment yields a big dividend for you because of compound interest. Well, I think what the Kelly Starrettes and the Dr. Frank Merritts and the Brian McKenzie's of the world are doing is – almost providing an investment account for you where there's compound interest for your health. And with just a few minutes a day in these various areas and a bit, little more consciousness to our process, we can start to, to receive those big dividends over time. And you mentioned earlier in the episode, Phil, that you've done some rowing. Out of interest for me specifically, is it predominantly the indoor rower you as a sculler or as a sweet rower? Yeah, sadly, mate. I would have. Um, I was talking about this with a buddy the other day. who's down in Florida, a good friend. That we would have loved to have been exposed to actual real outdoor rowing. And I do fully recognise, in respect to yourself and any other rowers listening, that 
there are some big differences between cranking away on the Concept 2 um, <laughs> and being on the water. But yeah, I got into, again, through the rugby boys, you know, they do a lot of like the 2020 intervals and all those kind of things, you know, just that anaerobic capacity on the row machine. And so really my mate Ben Spicer, who played like second division um, in Wales, you know, pretty good standard semi-pro and some of the other lads, we had one lad at our school, Sam Cox, who played for England under 18s and played for Bath for a number of years and then overseas in France. And um, all those lads kind of got me into the rowing machine back in the day in the gym, you know, when I was 14, 15. And then in my 20s, when I when I bought a rowing machine and um, I got pretty deep into Concept 2's forum, you know, and like the Peak Plan and the Wolverine Plan and all of those. And and, you know, posted an okay time and I think was in shape to do a much better time. And then something went in the rib cage and I, I still don't know what happened, but it wasn't good. And it was out for six or eight weeks and never since really pushed it to that level. But, um, yeah, that's always been my sporting fantasy of something where I think if I'd been exposed to it at a younger age, um, just with my body type, that I might have been okay. I wouldn't have reached your levels, James, or anywhere close, but I think with some coaching, may have been okay but yeah the the comprehensive school I went to that wasn't an option if you went to say Millfield you know the sports school down in southwest England or somewhere like that that was fee paying and expensive um then you know they had exposure to that kind of thing but we it was just never an option and the private clubs nearby were way too expensive for my my dad's stonemason salary to to support so just sadly never had exposure to it and you talk about obviously people cranking out with the rowing machine now. Mm-hmm. Would to some extent, and you've probably been in the gym gyms over time, seen some horror shows. I know I have. Uh, <laughs> Damper level ten, all arms, particularly guys. You hear me, guys? Level <laughs> <laughs> ten, right? Yeah. Well, that's all ego, and it won't be. Generally, oh, yeah. a lot of times, it won't. They'll only be oh, on yeah. their maximum, maybe five minutes. But you're thinking, well, oh, if you were better educated or wanted to learn, yeah. and I. But you've seen it, right? You've seen it oh, over still, and over I again. I still hate the machine, to, and if I'm being honest with people, okay, the the love hate relationship is not as bad as it was, say. When would I really, really hate it? Probably about five years ago, because it was me trying to compare myself as a retired athlete to somebody that done it at the elite level. You're thinking, well, James, you're being unrealistic here. You did that six days a week, up to thirty hours a day. Uh, thirty hours a day, thirty hours a week. Sorry, you don't train like that anymore. So it, it's a little bit. It's like apples and oranges. Okay, I'm a little bit better. Uh, perception of the mindset towards it now. I, I won't say I don't care, but it was like, well, I used to be able to do this. Okay, I'm okay with that. Let me try and get something reasonable. Uh, it was a contest a few months ago in my gym who could do the fastest, I think it was 1,000 meters. And I wasn't, for my body weight, I wasn't far off the top time. And I was just messing around, cooling down and thinking, okay. If I'd have been slightly a little bit fitter. Oh, you almost went down the rabbit hole, didn't you, mate? Like, okay, let's see what that 2K time's looking like oh, these no, no, days. No, 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 I'm not nuts. I'm not, one, one, one is enough. Two, 2K, 
and I can see how people do with inex- inexperience kind of hit the wall or or inexperience with anything to do with the row machine because they kind of think well that's cr- it can't be that far and then hit the wall I don't know oh, 500 meters for, for some people with a kilometer if that happens in a two kilometer I feel sorry for you because a lot because 1500 meters is a long way but I think because I've got all that experience behind me I've kind of got a metronome in my head well if I set I do this kind of split I know I can maintain it throughout the entirety of the distance whereas I think some people more probably more so the male population will be eagle driven let me just crank it out be gosh what's some of the stroke rates I've seen I think I think the highest I've seen with one was a trainer in my local gym I think it was in the 50s thinking yeah Okay. Well, the classic mistake, right, where they, they assume that even if they do go down like that concept, and the forum is really robust on concept two, both the US side and the UK side, right? Like it's, you know, a lot, lot of people like Zeno Mueller that um, actually did row in the Olympics, and, and Zeno is obviously a gold medalist, and so he'll hop on and kindly answer questions and others. And so it's a pretty robust online community and has been for, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. But even then with the guys that you always hear like, but shouldn't I have the damper level like on eight, nine or 10, you know, because I want to get strong, right? Like that kind of thing. And those are the guys you're talking about that are cranking at like 52 and then realize why after two minutes they have to handle down and the next day they can't feel their fingers. (laughs) No, but I think it's a, it's a misconception because I put it into the clients I've had in the past when it, when they've asked when I've been in that gym environment. Well, why necessarily, James? Do you put the damper setting on four to five? Okay, mm-hmm. that comes down to what I've been taught from the, the my road pedigree. Okay, I could go probably a little bit further into it and talk you through how you actually calibrate, well not calibrate it, that's probably not the right word, but be able to set it, that the, the damper setting is individual to you, and you know how to do it every single time, no matter what the machine is, where yeah, you the are. Drag, drag factor, right? Had a yeah. special setting on there where you can press the two buttons and figure that out, yeah, because that way, like my, my machine, even with the dirt levels, right, like my machine... I realized I haven't vacuumed it out, like taking the cage off for a while, but we're in Colorado and it's hot, you know, hotness-ish in the summer and it's always dry and dusty, even in the winter. And so that machine is just filthy. And unless I was going to employ a cleaner to come clean it every week, it's going to remain so. So even with routine maintenance, just the amount of dust and grit and stuff in the fan um, area is going to be far more than someone, say, in a coastal setting where they're going to be dealing with more like corrosion from the humidity. So yeah, you're right. Like being able to figure out that damper setting, or as you say, calibrate it in other ways is a big one, but I don't think they realize that even people that set records on, on the concept too, unless it's stupid stuff like a hundred meters, you know, 200 meters, whatever I'm talking about, like standard distances of 2k, 5k, 10k. Everyone I've ever seen has been in that range. You just mentioned like three, four, five, and it's long, smooth strokes, and it's just almost sneaky power, you know? And, and not one of those that I've ever seen, or even the, the grainy video of Matt Pinson when he set, like, the British indoor record of, you know, something ludicrous, like 550 or something back in the day, or 555, where it was, you know, I don't it was just 
absurd. But even that, from what I saw, I think the damper was on about four or five, as you mentioned. So even a big powerhouse like Pinson or Redgrave or one of those guys or Zeno, none of those were 10 and all arms all day, right? Because they actually, like you said, like you have that technical background, the coaching. But yeah, I mean, hopefully then, so you just distill it down for your readers, right? Well, you just gave one recommendation, have a more reasonable damper setting. What are some others, you know? What are some other basics you would tell people? Well, what's the biggest muscle in your body? Exactly. And that's a big, that's a big one. But, but, but that one is a te- technical aspect. And I don't know why... They've, they used to have stickers on, oh, what would you even call the neck of the machine, mm-hmm. and you don't see them that more in the in the gym. I don't know if it's concept two change it because people aren't um, either bothered with it, or you can find that information on the internet if you choose to. So I guess maybe they're doing it. Well, if the person really wants to broaden their knowledge base, they know where to find it. Because Maybe. the the well, I think the website's on the on the machine itself. But I think that's a big one is remembering. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the big your biggest muscles in your legs? Obviously, your quads and your hamstring. So if you can utilize that, okay, it's a timing issue. My my family is well. I think my mum will be the only one who will go on the rowing machine. But she'll she'll ask, well, am I doing it correctly? And she's probably from probably somebody of her age or an inexperience with the row machine I'm gonna say it's perfect but probably by watching me down the years or asking questions it won't take much to change it it'll be like a few certain tweaks I know she hasn't been on in a while but it's yeah. telling people okay it's in essence is other than swimming which is a non-way of bearing exercise, which is probably the best form of exercise, would be the rowing machine because it's a whole body, won't say experience, it's probably not the right word, but you're going to get a total body workout just from one piece of equipment. Yeah, exactly. And you can kind of tweak it from be aerobic or anaerobic, however you please. What you mentioned, obviously, is anaerobic, and uh, good on you because those type of ones I do not like. Uh, I think the ones, um, I don't want to say they give me nightmares, but this one aspect of training I do not miss would be the one minute on, one minute off. Oh, the yeah. Sprints. I, I, yeah, I it's, love uh, and, them. and then, then try doing what Brian McKenzie told me to do, as in Brian McKenzie of back in the day, CrossFit Endurance, now Power Speed Endurance and the Art of Breath. He was like, all right, for, for, for the next month or two, just do all your training, including your interval training with nasal breathing only, nose in and out. Good luck with that with the one minute on and one minute off. But then, you, then, so what do you do then? Then you have to just back off your intensity level until your body adapts a bit, and then you start to find you can go probably to about 90% of your max until you have to start breathing through your mouth. And then just from the nasal breathing, like you mentioned a minute ago, the cadence of the rowing motion and the sequencing, it's the same thing with your breath that you then, even if you do have to switch switch to mouth breathing beyond a certain threshold, that mouth breathing is still more controlled than it would have been previously. So, yeah, that's an interesting piece of homework for anyone listening. Nasal-only breathing in and out during all your training for the next month. See what you discover. I don't know that would be quite difficult because... Oh, yeah, it's meant to be. 
I, I, I naturally think it off the top of my head. I think at low levels of intensity of exercise with the row machine, I think it's, it almost says easy, but you are obviously you're not completely breathing out your nose, unless it's probably steady state and you can have a conversation with somebody as well. And once you get to a good enough level, but the higher you go up, I think there's a sense of, and I don't know if you'd agree with this. Uh, sense of maybe panic sets in sometimes that you mm-hmm. think you're not going to get enough oxygen in through your nose so you're going to take these in essence big gulps of air to try and get it in but you're thinking well they're both going to the same place and probably your mouth is not as actually productive as you you actually think it is to be able to get the oxygen so you're, you're yeah. probably not uh, being conducive, and I spoke to Patrick uh, yeah, Patrick, about yeah. about this, yeah. as in oh yeah, athletes. I, work with Pat, I do some work with Patrick at XBT, and he's been very influ- influential with Brian McKenzie. So yeah, I mean, talking to Patrick about training with the Australian rugby team, and if you type in like Aussie rugby team, Patrick McKeown, or nose breathing or nasal breathing, you'll see some photos of them training with their mags taped. And his contention is that when you start mouth breathing, you are signaling to your brain that the body is under duress and that you start to fatigue quicker. And so you're telling it that it's going nine out of 10 when sometimes it may be going only five or six out of 10. And your your body's going to, sh- your brain will shut your body down, whether that's a complete shutdown, probably not, but it will reduce the power output, speed output and endurance because it feels that that the organism is being threatened and the brain's main function is to perpetuate the organism, right? Keep you alive. And so his contention is that while most of us start mouth breathing around maybe five, six, seven out of 10 in terms of rate of perceived exertion, that most of us can probably go to eight, eight and a half, nine before we need to. And in doing so, we're not going to talk our brain out of you know, increased endurance, um, more continuous power output, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, Patrick knows more about that stuff than anyone on the face of the planet. So I'm, I'm glad you guys were able to connect. Well, we actually, as we mentioned in this, I actually, he had me do one of his exercises as we were recording. And I, I think a little bit with my ego, I, I was kind of doing it and concentrating on just solely the nose. I think at one point it went a little bit blurry, <laughs> blurry looking at the screen. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, as a listener, you probably can't tell that, but if I kept the video, um, I think that one actually, if you go on YouTube, that is a video uh, episode. So you might actually, if you can, with Skype, it'd probably be very difficult because I, I don't think it's side by side. I think it might be small screen. Mm-hmm. You might actually see that I look a little bit a little bit woozy and things like that so oh yeah I think I went a bit let alone when, you, when you're on the rower and you're going hell for leather you know <laughs> oh it brought back some memories thinking I'm well I'm only sitting in front of a computer screen thinking well okay maybe I've taken it too far to I think it was just slowing down the breathing and to, to focus making it so it's solely coming in and out the no, nose and I'm thinking I'm practiced some of it but I didn't get it far as I would have liked it's some it's definitely for anybody listening that wants to gosh I would say 
probably more than 1% to prove your performance. I would say definitely check him out because I think it will. And I think we... And I think in the episode he mentioned most of the population don't even breathe from the diaphragm. So that's... If you can change that, first of all, in your general day-to-day life, that's going to help you with... Well, just we mentioned tension through the, the shoulder girdle well that's a big one right there that's going to help yeah. because you're yeah because if you're stressed from the chest straight away yeah and again going back to the brain when those like the, the diaphragm is a big workhorse for muscle like if you look at it and you look at all the structures it connects to you will see like just how potent this thing is and so when we start to underuse it then you're starting to get into those secondary respiratory muscles as patrick would say which is really a fancy way of saying all the stuff that shouldn't be like in charge, you know, they might help a little bit with the breathing, but like say the intercostals where I know a lot of rowers, you'll know this, you know, have injury issues in the rib cage um, or for the rest of us, like the pecs, as you mentioned in the chest. And then we start to bring in some of the, the shoulder and back muscles and the lats. And if we're breathing that way, where we're not engaging the diaphragm, um, because we're taking shallow mouth breaths, whether we realize it or not, and we're breathing in too much, too quickly all day the average person i believe takes between 16 and 24,000 breaths a day well over time that's going to start to mount up into problems like excess uh tension as you just mentioned james correctly um it's also going to put us in a state where we're kind of permanently in sympathetic dominant state which is again a ritzy way of saying kind of that fight or flight state of high alert and we find too that um I do a, a little work with with camo, which uh, or Challenge Aspen up in um, Carbondale slash Aspen here in Colorado that work with veterans who have traumatic brain injuries um, and uh, and PTSD, and they find that the breath work is a big piece with those veterans or anyone that suffered from abuse or has been in a car wreck or any traumatizing event to help click the amygdala in the brain and the other kind of high alert areas of the brain from that permanently locked on mode down into the off mode so that you can get better sleep or some sleep so that you can breathe easy so that you can relax. And again, as we were talking about earlier, James, it's minimum effective dose. And I think Patrick in his book, the oxygen advantage, which listeners should pick up probably one of the best 15 pound investments on Amazon you'll ever make. um, There's a couple of very simple daily exercises there where again, if you just bring a little consciousness to the process and even five minutes a day, you can start to make massive changes without even having to, to only nasal breathe in your training. If you just did the day-to-day stuff in there, and then maybe you just start to experiment, oh, in my workouts, when is it that I'm falling apart, where my breath becomes ragged? Because I went out for a 5K run with my mate and I haven't run a 5K since my PE teacher tortured me back in secondary school and made us all do it. That kind of thing. And you fall apart after 1K. Well, why is that? Well, maybe you're not doing any endurance work. So you need to start adding, say to your mate, hey, next time you're going to run, text me and I'll come with you. You know, that could be as simple as that. And again, it's not these things where this is only for Olympians or world champions or that it only applies to the elite. Because really... Your lungs were trained to a higher degree than mine, but they function in the same way, you know, or or pick a rugby player or footy player or any sport. Their physiology is the same. The cardiovascular system, the heart and lungs are in the same place and they work the same way. 
It just happens to be that yours were trained to a higher degree. Um, your VO2 max was higher, you know, typical rowers, I'm going to guess, than mine would be. Um, and it's just, you know, a, a better, and there may be some genetic factors that predispose you to better, you know, endurance or, or output within that system. But your heart and lungs are still the same as anybody else's at the basic level. So just making these small changes that Patrick McKeown or, you know, Led Hamilton and the crew at XBT, as I mentioned, that Patrick works with or Brian McKenzie with Art of Breath. Um, really the goal is just making positive life change and really the breath another thing is you can change your state so if you're stuck in a traffic jam and you're late for picking your kids up or late for an important work meeting and you feel yourself your breath start to go well just consciously try to take a slow breath in through your nose and a slower one out through your nose and just do that for a couple of minutes and if you took your heart rate before and after, you would see your heart rate's going to be down. If you have one of those tight sleeves, the old blood pressure, which you wouldn't in your car, that would be insanity. But you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Your blood pressure would drop and you're actually able to not just change your physical performance, but you're able to change your, your physical state, your cognitive state, your emotional state, just by concentrating on your breath and manipulating it a little bit. So yeah, Patrick McKeon's book, The Oxygen Advantage and like I mentioned, Brian McKenzie's work, Art of Breath, um, you know, Led Hamilton and those guys at XPT, they're all doing really great work on this. And, and it's available for you or I as much as it would be for, for anyone else. And it's just a couple of minutes a day and being a bit more cognizant of your breath can really make a big difference. And I think you might have answered this question already, Phil. But from this episode, how can people change their perception of their mindset, firstly? And then secondly, and it's kind of gone, it's gone out of my mind now. Um, secondly, how would they better themselves by 1% on a daily basis? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, in terms of mindset, I think it just comes back to a, a slogan for the Obama campaign back in the day. And this is not to get political. I don't care what your politics are. I'm very non-political. I just don't care. I, I don't want to get in an argument about it. So whatever, whether you vote, which side you vote, not interested. But it, it was yes, you can, you know. And I think that maybe you had reacted to, to a post I put on Facebook where it was um, Kyle Maynard, the, the quadriplegic athlete who has, you know, climbed a bunch of mountains and accomplished all these amazing feats that someone looking at somebody who was born without most of their arms and legs would have tried to say, well, you can't, you cannot do this. You cannot do that his whole life. Well, then another one, um, a gentleman I interviewed one time by the name of Eric Weiermeyer, who is the only blind person to climb not just Everest, but all of the seven summits. So the highest peak on each continent. And his new film, The Weight of Water, is it kind of chronicles him and his river guide going down the whole length of the Grand Canyon through class three, four, and five rapids and he's blind, okay? It, it, I mean, if, if I said to you, would a blind person be able to, to canoe or kayak through class four and five rapids, you would say, no, you're out of your mind. Well, he did. And by the way, he climbed all those mountains. So I, I think just mindset-wise, stop making excuses for yourself, whether that's with your physical capacity, whether you want to write a book, whether you want to, you've always wanted to take up a hobby, but you keep making excuses that you don't have time, Find the time, sacrifice something, challenge yourself, surround yourself with positive people who don't look at you, all of the you cannot, you can't, that are going to encourage you. Yes, you can. Why not just try? 
And if you fail, okay, well, fine, but at least you tried. So mindset-wise, I think that, and then the second part of the question, I think bettering yourself by 1%, just getting some consistent habits. So whether it's, you know, doing the 17-hour fast once a week or some kind of fasting, whether it's bringing a bit more awareness to your breath in everyday life and in your training and your recovery, whether it's doing 10 minutes of mobility work um, a day, every day, just pick one of the above, say the breath, okay, well, I'm going to go read Patrick McKeon's book, The Oxygen Advantage. Okay, well, I'm a pretty slow reader, James, but I could probably knock that off in four or five nights. That's going to be my homework. And now my, the second part is I'm going to challenge myself to go away and put what he says into practice, literally the two simplest exercises in the book. And I'm going to write down how I feel each day that I'm doing them. And I'm just going to see how I feel. Is it better or worse, indifferent? Well, if it's working, I'll probably keep paying attention to my breath a little bit, both every day and in my training. Well, then from there, that's going to not just give you 1%. I think Brian McKenzie did some breath work with a CrossFit athlete in Australia who managed to increase their aerobic capacity by 23% and ended up winning the Pacific Regionals a couple of years ago. So at any level, I mean, at your level, 23% is the difference between you not qualifying for the Olympics and winning the gold medal. Uh, in everyday life, everyone has their own Olympics of some kind. So if it's 1%, if it's 3%, just doing the breath, you know, bringing a bit more awareness to your breath and then doing some of the stuff that Patrick McKeown recommends or even the homework could be as simple as go listen to your James's episode on, you know, with Patrick McKeown and take a couple of his pointers. That's it. Just go away and do it because breathing is the most elemental thing you can do as a human being. We take thousands of them every day, but when was the last time you were aware of even a single one? Well, I think you, I, I think probably as you mentioned in this episode, I think when you actually actually take conscious effort of actually concentrating on your breathing, it's generally when something goes wrong. Obviously, you talked about the flight or flight, eh, fight or flight response, and I've had obviously had issues with, with that recently with the, the anxiety. And we touched upon that a little bit in the other episode, but even I, as you could say, some people would probably associate me as a superhuman individual or, or a robot because I've been able to accomplish my feats in sport, but even I've lost track of. of because you get kind of, I would say, sidetracked and lose sight of what's important. You forget about the little things. And obviously, the biggest one to life is breathing, okay? Because we don't control it at all because it's an involuntary function. Okay, you can slow it down. But you can't stop it unless unless you want to, unless you and I and I'll be all, all serious now in terms of if you want to you you want to actually put yourself into either some some harm or or, or actually die to a certain extent you you can't stop it so I think that's maybe because that is maybe why sorry we don't focus entirely on that because it's like well it's not something I can control. So why maybe try to? But I think from experiences that I've had now, being in tune with it before a trauma happens, 
I think you're going to be in better stead than say and be in my position. Not know what, not know, not what, not uh, not know what's going on with you because you're having a panic attack and you, because you you assume you're a healthy individual. Okay, what 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 the hell's happening to me? I I can't control my heart rate. I'm this is only generalizing a little bit. This is, okay, it's my symptoms, but sweating profusely. And somebody even said my eyes were going all over the place. So you're thinking, well, okay, I don't know what's happening to me. But if I was able to be able to be in connection with my body, I probably would have dealt with it a little bit better. And I would say that definitely with the breathing, okay. In essence, I probably panicked because, one, okay, your heart, heart, rate, your heart rate starting to race and feel it in your head. It's not normal. So I think it's maybe those two together, you're thinking, well, okay, I think this is where your mental side of things probably are on heightened sense of alert, like you mentioned. You start over thinking the actual situation. And In my case, with my family, they're probably very uh, astute of this. will magnify the, the, the symptom and thinking, well, okay, this raising heart rate pounding in my head, okay, I'm having a heart attack. Whereas probably if you look at it from a simplistic way of thinking, well a panic attack is is gonna is gonna got that ebb and flow, it's it's gonna rise, it's gonna fin it's gonna pass well not eventually, but it will pass with time. Whereas a heart attack is something more serious, it's probably gonna stay a little bit longer and it's going to give more symptoms. So I think it's knowing yourself and, and knowing your breathing patterns and being able to probably identify when you're having that, that situation and, be, and, and very much like you talked about, if you probably put them into place and get your breathing sorted now, you'll be able to be able to not predict... But be in a better position if you the, the stressor did arise, you're in a better position to be able to cope with it. So I think you would be better better suited to do that. Whereas, and I've meant I've talked about this off air with a recent guest as well. If I had focused on and we'll talk, we'll throw my, my, my meditation and mindfulness into this as well with the breathing. If I'd have done that as an elite athlete, okay, I can't change the history. I can't change the past. I'm I'm all right with that. But what would have been the possibilities of the outcomes I'd have achieved? Okay, we don't know. I would like to think possibly I would have been a better athlete. Okay, I might have turned out to be a different person and been maybe a little bit less humble than I am today. But we'll never know. But being able to maybe think, oh, okay, it's not a what if now I'm not talking about, but if I'd have been able to implement the 1% I talk about, what would the what would the, the variables be on the outcome? So it's thinking of it from that perspective, a massive. So my last question for you before we wrap up the episode now is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? 
just try to bring a bit more awareness to your in quotes process, whatever that means. And so, as I mentioned, um, in doing so, figure out what is the minimum effective dose in some of these critical areas where these are not marginal gain things. These are not 1% things. Like if you did say the 10 minutes of mobility, you know, you, you get Kelly's book, Becoming a Supple Leopard or Walter Man, or you go on his website, mobilityworld.com, or even look at some of his free videos on YouTube. And you start with it, it comes back to what you said, James, being more aware of your body. You realize that you have, you're missing maybe half the range of motion you should have at your left hip. And you're able to clear that up, say, by doing the couch stretch, um, Kelly, Kelly Sorek's couch stretch and some quad smashing. Simple. I mean, it may be something bigger than that, but simple, simple version. Well, your athletic capacity to run, jump, whatever it might be, might go up by, you know, 5%, 10%. So, so, so in bringing more consciousness to your, to your process, try to find some holes in your game. And so the, it could be, I don't sleep enough. Or my sleep quality is crap. Well, then wind that backwards a little bit and start asking the second question, the third question. Well, how late in the day do I have caffeine? Oh, I'm still swilling coffee at 9 p.m., 7 p.m. You know, it may be as simple as that. And, and so I think that often when we do look for holes in our games, it's a very, it's a simple fix. And again, it's a or it's a minimum effective dose about what we can add or do differently. So today we talked about mobility. We talked about breath awareness. Um, we talked about fasting. So what are, what are some holes in my game that I can, I can fill? What are some things that I can do differently? And maybe what are one or two habits that I, that I can add um, in just a few minutes a day to create major change? But it all starts with taking an honest look at ourselves or asking a spouse, a good friend, a training buddy, um, a coach, to, to speak truth into your life and, and, and say, you know, I've been I'm just tired all the time. What do you think is going on? Or I'm stressed out all the time. What problems are you seeing? And then from there, just doing a bit of self-discovery and then maybe just picking one habit or one practice you could either add or change that might, might you know, maybe we talked about today. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a, a broken relationship where you simply need to forgive a person. Again, little acts that lead to big results and really how can I trigger some of this compound interest for health that uh, we talked about earlier. So once again, Phil, thanks again for coming on the mindset game podcast. Well, thank you so much, James, really uh, privileged to do it. Um, I just appreciate you so much as, as a friend and as a person and just uh, the fact that you let me ramble for two hours rather than one is just a, Really great opportunity for a couple of good in-depth conversations. Yeah. So, yeah, the pleasure's all mine. Thank well, you. The pleasure's been all mine as well. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends. And do let Phil and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at philwhitebooks and at jamesgoldrobs11 on Twitter and again on Facebook. And again, do check out Phil's book, Waterman 2.0, Game Changer and the 17-hour fast. But also check out Patrick McEwen's book, The Oxygen Advantage, as Phil mentioned in the episode. And finally, by checking out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Make sure to check those all out. 
The links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsum.com under the category sport. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.